Welcome to the Vertical Church Podcast. Today we are continuing our series, Kingdom Come. Now here's Pastor Josh Butcher with this week's message. All right, I remembered that I didn't actually tell you where to open your Bibles to. Open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 5 if you have your Bible. If you don't, uh, the passage of the scripture that we're going to be looking at this morning will be on the screen. If you have uh, your booklet with you, the passage is also printed in that. If you didn't get a Kingdom Come booklet, this is your first time or you didn't, you didn't bring yours, we have them available uh, in the lobby area. Make sure you pick one up if you don't have one when you leave today. Um, we are in a series called Kingdom Come. We're on week five. Uh, just in case you've missed a couple of weeks, we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount, asking the question, what does it look like? To live in God's world, God's way. What does it look like to live in God's world, God's way? And we're on uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. We're almost finished with verse 5. Uh, good news, we're not even halfway done. So, so if you're tired of the Sermon on the Mount, we've still got a long way to go. We've got two more chapters after today. Um, and it just keeps getting better and better. Uh, matter of fact... If you were in, you know, first or second grade, you might say it just keeps getting gooder and gooder. Um, but if you're not in first or second grade, you probably wouldn't say that. Uh, anyway, while you're opening that up, I want to do something. We, gotta, we all have to be on the same page this morning, so let's do this. I want you to look at the person beside of you, especially if you came with them. Okay, look at the person beside of you on... You're right, I guess. I, that would have everybody look in the same direction. Look at the person you came with, if you came with somebody. And I want you to look at them, and I want you to say this to them. You ready? Say this. You're not perfect. Okay? Now, now I want you to look at the other person beside of you and tell them, say, you're not perfect. Now, for some of you, that's freeing. Right? Some of you are getting a little bit too enthusiastic. I told you you weren't perfect. Right? Now I want everybody to look at me and I want you to say this with me. I'm not perfect. Now wait a second. We did, we did you're not perfect and it was like, you're not perfect! Ah! And then I had you look at me and it's like, I'm, I'm, I'm not perfect. What's up with that? You look at somebody else and you can say it loud, you're not perfect, but when I'm, I'm not perfect. I kind of mumbled it. Anyway, we've got to be on that page this morning, on the page where we recognize that nobody in this auditorium has reached a stage and a state of, of perfection, and there's no more room for you to grow. Because if we're not on that level, if we're not all on the same page, then the message today is going to be a little bit difficult to receive. But if we're all on the same page that says, I'm not perfect, you're not perfect. Um, none of us have, have reached a stage of, of never growing again perfection. And so if we're all on the same page, then this, this is going to make a lot of sense this morning. I want to start off with a story. It's not my story. Uh, it's actually a story from the life of Eugene Peterson. Eugene Peterson uh, is the author of the paraphrased version of the Bible called The Message. If you've read The Message, then you've read the work of Eugene Peterson. He was a pastor uh, for a long time. He grew up as a little child in the state of Montana in a, in a good Christian home that he actually describes as kind of living in the Garden of Eden. I mean, he said it was perfect. 
that, that his mother uh, taught him, you know, the things about Jesus, how to live his life. They went to church and it was basically like paradise. Had all kind of space to run and be free in Montana and it was just great. Until one day in second grade when Eugene Peterson encountered Garrison Johns. Garrison Johns was the school bully. And about the third day of school, Garrison discovered Eugene. And by discovering, uh, he means he picked Eugene to be his personal project for the year. And every day uh, after school, Garrison would stalk Eugene Peterson and hunt him down and basically beat his face into the ground like school bullies do. He would first begin taunting him and, and saying things, and he would just then get to a full-on beatdown session. In fact, Garrison found out that Eugene was a Christian, so his arsenal expanded, and Garrison began calling Eugene a, quote, Jesus sissy. You're just a Jesus sissy. And his mother told him, you know what, bud? Uh, Christians have been treated this way throughout history, so get used to it. That, that this is just, this is kind of normal behavior. And he had been taught the passage that we're going to look at today. You got to turn the other cheek. There's really nothing that you can do about that. Then came a day in March. So the school year, you know, three quarters of the way over. And, and Eugene's just been getting beat down almost every day until this day in March. When Garrison began his usual taunting, his usual, you know, vocal, vocal jabs, working, kind of working his, his anger and motivation up to a full-on pounding. And here's the, in Eugene Peterson's own words, here's what happened next. He says, something snapped within me, totally uncalculated, totally out of character. For just a moment, the Bible verses disappeared from my consciousness, and I grabbed Garrison. To my surprise and his, I realized I was stronger than he. I wrestled him to the ground, sat on his chest, and pinned his arms to the ground with my knees. I couldn't believe it. He was helpless under me, at my mercy. It was too good to be true. I hit him in the face with my fists. Listen, it felt good and I hit him again. Blood spurted from his nose, a lovely crimson on the snow. By this time, all the other children were cheering and egging me on. Black his eyes, bust his teeth. A torrent of vengeful invective poured from them, although... Nothing compared with what later in life I would read in the Psalms. I said to Garrison, say uncle. He wouldn't say it. I hit him again. More blood, more cheering. Now the audience was bringing out the best in me. And then my Christian training reasserted itself. I said, say, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior. And he said it. Garrison Johns was my first Christian convert. <laughs> now, you may or may not have to figure out how to deal with a neighborhood bully, a school bully. Uh, but odds are you will have to decide in everyday life if you're going to retaliate when people wrong you. You have, 
You have to decide if you will treat people the way they treat you or if you will treat people better than they have treated you. And chances are, just this past week, somebody in your life has wronged you. Somebody in your life has has insulted you or they have slighted you or maybe they just simply passed off a careless comment that hurt. You have to decide... You know, it it might even be somebody you've never met before, or it might be the person sitting beside you right now that you live with every day. It might be your spouse. It might be somebody that you work with. If you can think of a time just this past week that you were wronged, a careless comment, a harsh word, an insult, I want you to put that in your mind, and I want you to keep it there as we listen and hear the words of Jesus from Matthew chapter 5. Verses 38 and following. So if you have your Bibles, like I said, that's where we're going to begin. The passage of Scripture is already up on the screen. If you have a smartphone or a tablet with you, you can follow along on version under the live link by searching for vertical. And all the Scriptures and notes are right there. So listen to these words of Jesus. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Now, this passage, and we're going to look at the one next to it, because the, the one right after that here in just a minute, because I believe these two are intimately connected. I don't believe they're separated. You know, in your Bible, it probably has a little heading over this paragraph that says something like an eye for an eye, and over the next one, it says, love your enemies. And we read that like those are two different thoughts. I don't think that's the case here. I think Jesus is just on one train of thought. So this morning, we're going to look at both of them. But this first passage I just want to kind of come to this realization and accept this, that this passage is shocking. It's, can can we all just admit that this doesn't make sense? What Jesus is telling us here, it it doesn't fit with our uh, version, our vision, our real life experience in reality. In the real world, these words of Jesus don't, fit with our experience. And you might even ask the question, and if you ask this question, I think you would be completely legitimate in asking, is Jesus being unrealistic here? Is this some kind of ideal world that Jesus is talking about and living in? Is is there something about Jesus that he just doesn't face up to the realities of the world. I mean, let's face it. Jesus says, if someone smacks you upside the head, turn the other cheek and let them smack that one. That it's not the natural inclination that I have when somebody smacks me. <laughs> Jesus says to do good to those who intend to harm you. And a lot of times when when we encounter something in life, we have the same response that Eugene Peterson had as a second grader. When we come up against evil, when we come up against a threat, a lot of times these words of Jesus get thrown out the window because they don't fit. They don't make sense. 
You know, it makes sense not to hate someone and have anger in your heart and, and, and kind of murder them. That, that makes sense. It makes sense not to commit adultery, not to harbor lust. You know, that, that makes sense. But when somebody intentionally hurts you and says something about you or seeks to hurt you physically, you know, not resisting them. Jesus, that, that's not how we've been raised. You know, I was raised in southern West Virginia that, you know, you don't start a fight, son, but you finish it, right? And, and when you get in that situation, what do these words mean? Well, what we have to ask, because the passage starts by saying, you have heard that it was said. And I hope that when you read something like that, the first question that you have in your mind, I hope, is, well, what was said? And where was it said? And what is, it, what is Jesus talking about here? Well, Jesus is pulling up something from Exodus chapter 21. It's part of the Mosaic law. Moses lays out how the children of Israel are going to live and be God's chosen people in the ancient Near East. And there's this, there's this idea, principle, if you will, that Moses is writing in Exodus chapter 21 that we could call the principle of exact retaliation. At that time, in Moses' time, um, this writing is revolutionary. They had a major problem in Moses' day of, of vengeance and revenge escalating out of control. Uh, if you, you know, steal my goat, then not only am I going to take a goat from you, but I'm going to kill one of yours. And then, because I kill one of yours, now you're going to attack attack my child in the field. And when you attack my child in the field and throw a rock and hit his head, I'm going to come kill your wife. And when, you, when I kill your wife, you're going to come burn my house down and kill me. So they had in this day, you know, it doesn't happen today at all. People don't think that way. Um, this, this escalating cycle. We're just going to do one more, one bigger, one uh, step further in our violence and revenge. Did, did anybody in the room watch uh, on the History Channel the uh, miniseries on Hatfields and McCoys? Anybody watch that? That was cinematically, that was awesome. Now, the story is disturbing. Um, so it's hard to say, man, that was really good. Because, you know, it's, the story is not good. It's true. I grew up there. Um, this is, if you watch that movie, this is where I grew up. In, in a town right next to the town I grew up in, there's a river. And in the river, it, it splits to form a little island. And the island is called Hatfield Island. Um, matter of fact, all, the militia that, that Devil Lance Hatfield formed, uh, you may not care to know this, just a little history lesson. Um, the militia that they formed was called the Logan Wildcats, which is the rival high school to the high school I grew up and attended. Okay, same name, same town, same mascot, okay? So I grew up there. And that story goes, basically, you know, one guy had a pig and, and some, it looked like somebody stole it because it had a notch in its ear. And so you stole my pig, now I'm going to shoot your brother. You know, you shot my brother, now I'm going to hang your three kids. Well, you hung my three kids, so I'm going to arrest your whole family and persecute them. You know, it's, it's just a story that you see time and time again throughout history of vengeance and violence getting out of control. And so this command that Moses writes back in the Old Testament was intended to put a check on how far revenge could go. If, 
in, in fact, this principle, the principle of exact retaliation, is the basis for every modern legal system in the world. Have you ever heard the, the, the phrase, you know, the punishment should fit the crime? That's what this is talking about. That's why you and I, when we get out here on battlefield or we get on 64 and we're speeding, breaking the law, we don't get pulled over and shot. Or, you know, or we don't get our feet cut off because we were pushing the pedal too hard. We get a speeding ticket, right? The punishment should fit the crime. That thought is the basis for every modern legal system in the world. And when Jesus says this, he's not saying that the Old Testament law was bad or that even that it was wrong. Because, as a matter of fact, earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that I didn't come to, uh, you know, to do away with the law, but to fulfill the law. And so he's not saying that this writing from Moses is bad. What I believe Jesus has been getting at this whole time in the Sermon on the Mount is this right here. Legislation and law, rules and regulations, cannot transform the human heart. That's what I think Jesus is getting at. He says, look, you've had the Mosaic law for how many years and your hearts are still evil. So let's try something Jesus is, is hitting at that will transform your heart. Let me, let me show you what it would look like to be so set free from anger and hatred and evil. A lot of times we read passages like the Sermon on the Mount and we think that Jesus is giving us more rules to follow. And if you're like me, I read this and I think, okay, I already struggle with praying enough and I don't read my Bible enough, and now I've got more rules so that I'm more of a failure when it comes to being a Christian. And I get depressed and discouraged when I'm trying to live for Jesus because I read his, his words and I'm thinking, great, more rules. This, this doesn't help me. And I don't. What, what I'm coming to realize is that Jesus is not giving us more rules to follow. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is illustrating what a life looks like that has truly been transformed by God and is living today in His kingdom. Remember, our question for the whole series is, is how do we live in God's kingdom, and God's world, God's way? And I believe Jesus is illustrating that point. Hey, here's what it looks like to be so transformed by the power of God that you're living today in a way that will make sense in the future. And so in an effort to do this, Jesus gives us three scenarios. He says there are three scenarios here, three examples, if you will. He says, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to them the other also. Now, what is that? What does that mean? Well, in Jesus' day, if you would get hit on the right cheek, that almost certainly means that someone took their right hand and backhanded you. Okay? If you, if you can kind of, maybe even you have to figure it out, like illustrate it for yourself, look at the person, think, okay, their right cheek, how am I going to hit that with my right hand? I'm going to have to backhand them. I'm going to have to hit them with the back of my hand. And in Jesus' day, that was a huge insult. In Jesus' day, you didn't hit just anybody with the back of your hand. You hit people who were inferior to you. You only hit, you only hit slaves that way. 
You only hit children that way. Unfortunately, in Jesus' culture, you would only hit women that way. Someone who was beneath you, that was your inferior, that was not as good as you, you would backhand them. It, was a, it wasn't just a, a smack on the, on the cheek. It wasn't just a punch. It was a degrading insult that said, you are not as good as me. I am better than you. And so Jesus says, how do you handle it? How do you, how do you come up with a creative way forward? Do you just punch them back? And say, you know what? No, I'm not. Bam, and just hit them back? He says, no, I don't think so, because that will just escalate and continue the, the cycle of degradation and the cycle of violence. The cycle will just continue. Jesus says, why don't you do this? Why don't you turn the other cheek and say, and by, by doing this, hit me if you want to. But when you hit me this time, you're going to recognize that me and you were equals. Whoa! Jesus is working on a level that I don't even understand. Hit me if you want, but you will not insult me when you hit me. I will let you hit me, but when you do that, everyone will see that you have declared you and me, we're on the same ground. We're equals. You're not superior to me. Whoa. I don't know if that messes with anybody else's mind or blows your lid. But that's brilliant. That's a way, you know, that's like saying you got A and B and, and these are your two choices. And Jesus steps in and says, you know what? You're asking the wrong question. The answer isn't even A or B. It's somewhere up here. It's a completely different option that when you're in the middle of the situation, you're not even considering. Because the question you're thinking is, well, do I hit him back or do I just lay down and take it? And Jesus says, neither. You don't do either of those. You turn the cheek and say, hit me if you want, but recognize that me and you, we're equals. You're not going to degrade me and insult me. That's brilliant. Listen to what Jesus goes on to say, because he continues to do this, this, this creative third option that no one is even thinking about how to handle the, the, the cycle of violence, the cycle of retaliation. The shirt and cloak thing, you know, it says if someone... Um, wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak. Th those words, tunic and cloak, those are fancy words for shirt and jacket, okay? Shirt and coat, if you want to think of it that way. Jesus says, if you get in a situation where you're not going to win, let's face it, you're getting sued and they're going to take it. If they take the shirt off of your back, literally the shirt off of your back, then give them your coat too. Now, in Jesus' day, most people only wore those two things. Do you see what Jesus is saying? He's saying, if someone's willing to sue you and take the shirt off of your back, give them your coat and walk around naked and let your nakedness expose the evil in their heart because this is what they've done to you. Whoa! Absolutely brilliant! Because now everybody says, hey, why is that person walking around naked? Oh, well, you know... Billy Bob sued him and, and took everything he had and left him in, in this impoverished, naked state. Whoa, he, he did that to him? Yeah, shameful, huh? Yeah. Whoa. 
Jesus is working on a level that boggles my mind. Listen to what he does the third time, because this is even better. The whole thing about, you know, if someone forces you to carry uh, their, their pack one mile, you know, go with them too. In those days, the, the Roman law was very specific. A Roman soldier could make, a, make someone carry their equipment for one mile, exactly one mile, not a foot further than one mile. If they went an, a foot further than one mile, they had serious repercussions. So Jesus says, when a Roman soldier comes up and says, hey, carry my pack for a mile, I command you, I order you to do that. What do you do? Do you say, no, I'm not going to do that and get in some kind of a big argument fight? Jesus says, no, no, no. There's a whole different option that you haven't even considered. The option is this, carry it two miles, and then you're going to completely astonish the soldier. And now the soldier is thinking, oh, shoot, what if my commanding officer sees that this person's carrying my pack for a second mile? I'm going to be in huge trouble. I will get punished. I will get brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. This are, these, these are just three scenarios that, that Jesus is saying, here's what God's victory over evil looks like. It's not about, it's not about you know, fighting it head on and, and, and increasing your attack to meet their attack on you. It's about a whole different approach. It's brilliant. And so Jesus continues, after he gives those three scenarios, he continues his thought by talking about, enemies. And he says this in verse 43. He says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Let's go to the next one. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, we just did those three scenarios, and this isn't a, isn't a difficult question. If someone smacks you, if someone sues you for the shirt off of your back, or someone makes you carry their stuff for a mile you might classify that person as an enemy, right? That's why I think Jesus is just on one train of thought here. And for the disciples, the enemy was not just some kind of abstract enemy, you know, thought. I mean, you and I, we don't have enemies, okay? We have people that get on our nerves. We have people that, that make our lives difficult where we work. We have people that, you know, smack their gum too loud in the cubicle next to us. We don't have enemies, typically. And by saying that, what I mean is the disciples, they had plenty of enemies. They had people cursing them because they believed they were transgressing the law of God. They had people that would hurl insults and hated them because they left everything that they had behind. They left family businesses. They left brothers and sisters. And so people hated them and would insult and... and uh, you know, curse them. They had people that would, that would mock them for, their, for the appearance of weakness. They had people that would persecute them because they thought they were some kind of revolutionary trying to incite some rebellion. 
They had people in the popular religion of the Roman Empire that were completely perturbed and resented them because of the exclusive claim of Jesus Christ as the only way to God. And of course, they had the the occupying force of the Roman Empire. They had enemies. You and I, in our daily lives, we have the people that cut us off. Okay? They had people that wanted to throw rocks at them in the head. And we have stories of it in Scripture. People getting stoned. They knew what enemies were like. But what this hints at is the absolute absurdity of the Christian life. Just the ridiculousness of it all. Because right now, you're probably thinking, this doesn't make any sense. This is, Pastor Josh, what good could possibly come from being generous to evil people? What what good? What what if they don't appreciate what you're doing? What if they what if they end up taking advantage of you? What 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 are you talking about? This this very notion of loving our enemies, this is this is impossible. This is beyond our capacity. It cuts right through all of our ideas and concepts of right and wrong, of good and evil. This doesn't make sense. This is not how we live our life. If we, Pastor Josh, if we live this way, people will assume we're crazy. This, you don't do the things Jesus says and get ahead in this world. You're right. You're absolutely right. This is not how you get ahead in the world. Matter of fact, this is how you get killed. This is how you get killed in the world. And it's exactly how Jesus got killed. So let me ask some important questions. Let's just pause right here and ask some questions because I know that you have these questions because I know you. Right now, some of you are thinking, well, does this mean we, all, we have to, being a Christian, that we should all be pacifists? That we should not resist evil in any form? Because some people read this passage and that's where they get to. We should all be pacifists. And if you're there... That's cool. That's your reading. That's your interpretation. Be that way. That's the way God is leading and directing you. And that's fine. Honestly, I'm not there. I'm not there. Because in other places in Scripture, it's very clear. In the New Testament, it's very clear to seek justice, to defend the orphan, to defend the widow, to resist the evil one. So I'm not, I'm not completely there because I, I think one of the things Jesus is getting at is he's getting at the motivation of our heart when we respond to somebody. When we respond with a vengeful, angry heart, then we are in the wrong. But when we respond out of love for the other person, sometimes the most loving thing we can do is not allow them to continue in their evil behavior. For example, Martin Luther King Jr., the civil rights activist, the the preacher in the 60s, right? Got assassinated for preaching nonviolence, standing up against racism and prejudice, right? Do you know one of his primary motivations? Of course, he wanted to see his uh, ethnic people experience uh, freedom and, and civil civil freedom and, and and being able to you know eat at the same restaurants and use the same bathrooms and water fountains all that 
But one of his primary motivations, he said this. He said um, that, that he wanted to see the white person set free from racism. Because there's just something about evil that it doesn't just, it doesn't just offend the victim. Evil hurts the person doing it. And so there are times when the most loving thing you can do is to help the person who's committing evil get free from that evil. And so that's why, that's why we pursue righteousness and we don't pursue anger and, and vengeance out of our heart. We, we pursue love. It means that in everything and in every decision that we make, we are seeking what is good for the other, not for ourselves. For example, in Romans chapter 13, it teaches that governing authorities exist to reward those who do good and to punish those who do evil and that rulers do not, quote, do not bear the sword for nothing. And so I'm convinced that even in Scripture, it seems that there are structures of justice that exist for the benefit of, of, of us, for the benefit of good people, as much as for the benefit of evil people. And so the second question I think you're probably asking, is Jesus saying that we shouldn't intervene when we witness others doing evil or others as the victim of evil? I think Jesus is talking about his disciples here personally being willing to suffer wrongs without taking revenge. Because like I said, there are plenty of scriptures that talk about standing up for the helpless and the powerless. And there are lots of situations when, when it, it's good and right to resist people who are doing evil to others. But here's the main kind of caution that I want to give to those two questions. The tendency is to focus on all the difficult scenarios. The what-ifs. Well, what if, what if somebody showed up in my house with a gun and ready to shoot my family? Okay, granted, there, there's certainly a place for that conversation. But we shouldn't let the hard cases, the difficult situations, keep us from the obvious application of Jesus' teaching in everyday life. Let's face it, most of us, the scenario that we face, the only casualty of choosing to replace revenge and retaliation with a generous spirit, the only thing that suffers is our pride. Most of the time, that's our scenario. But we throw out these random off-the-wall cases to, to make an excuse for us when we want to hold on to our pride more than we want to love the one who hurt and wronged us. So I don't want us to just use these, these difficult, and there's a place for it, and there's conversation, and you work those things out in community. But so many times we just use those little arguments to say, well, it doesn't work here, so it doesn't work anywhere. You're missing the point. Most of our lives, we're trying to choose between, well, do I hold on to my pride or do I love this person and speak into their life through the life of Christ? And so what I want to kind of get us to realize is that commanding someone to love their enemies is, is absolutely, completely ridiculous. Let's face it. It is absolutely ridiculous. But the reality is, this is the first time Jesus has used the word love in the entire Sermon on the Mount. And he defines it by saying, love is in uncompromising terms, the love of our enemies. But then he follows it up and he says, love your enemies and pray for those who would seek to persecute you. 
See, I don't think Jesus is saying you have to do these things. I think Jesus is saying when you are set free from evil, when you are set free from from the life of sin, completely transformed by the power of God, here's what you're just going to naturally do. And right now you're thinking, "How how do I do that? How do I love? Jesus has already told us. Because in my own words, Jesus is telling us this, praying for our enemies... Praying for them is the way that God has chosen to transform our hearts so that we can love them. Because there's just something that happens when you choose to pray for someone. There's something that happens when you enter into the presence of God and you're praying for someone that you hate. There's a transformation that begins to take place as you encounter and interact and engage with the Spirit of God that begins to work on your heart and my heart. It's ridiculous to command someone to love, but it's not crazy to command someone to pray. Praying for the people that we hate, praying for our enemies, praying for the people who insult us is God's chosen way to transform our hearts. The reality is Jesus has already modeled this, this whole thing. Because the only way to live this out is accepting how Jesus treated you and how Jesus treated me. Because Jesus practiced exactly what he preached. You know, a lot of times we think the Sermon on the Mount is about us, about our lives and about our situations. And if it was just about us, we might admire it as some form of, of you know, paradise, some form of idealism of, all oh, this would be really great. But then ultimately we would just return to our normal lives. But the Sermon on the Mount is, is the blueprint for the way Jesus lived his life. It, this this collection, this sermon that Jesus preaches is not about how to behave. It's about, how, it's, a, it's about discovering the living God in the loving and dying Jesus. And then learning to reflect the love of God that we've experienced into the world that quite honestly just needs it really badly. You know, Jesus Christ went to the cross for the sake of his enemies. And when he's up there, what is he doing? Praying for them. Jesus' love for his enemies nailed him to a cross. And I can almost see it and picture it now that staring at the cross from a distance, the disciples realized they too were his enemies. And that somewhere along the way, he had overcome them and overwhelmed them by his love. You know, it looked like on that mountain, on that, on that cross that day, that evil had triumphed over God. That evil had triumphed over love. But the real victory, as you and I know, belonged to Jesus. Because the cross is the only power in the world which proves that suffering love can avenge and destroy evil. It's the only, the only symbol, the only, the only instance in the entire world where we see love suffering and dying and it overcomes evil. The reality is God loves and God's uh, passion and, and love 
seeks out his enemies. It's something about the nature of God's love. It seeks out those who need it most and whom he and he alone determines are worthy of that love. God loves his enemies and that's the most glorious thing you and I have ever heard. Because you and I, we are his enemies. The Bible teaches that you and I, we are born in a situation, in a position apart from God. And there's something wrong with you. And there's something wrong with us. We are born into sin. You and I, we're evil. And it's only because Jesus loved his enemies that you and I are here today. It's only because Jesus lived out the words that he said that we can experience and encounter God. You see, the disciples' behavior wasn't determined by the way others treated them, but by the way Jesus treated them. And the same is true for us. We, we respond to people out of the grace that Jesus has responded to us. You know, when, when, I, when I dwell and, and meditate and, and just let my mind and heart go on the fact that Jesus doesn't demand eye for eye from my life. The truth is, when I offend him and insult him, he doesn't demand tooth for tooth. I offend him, and I get grace. I insult him, and I get grace. And the truth is, that humbles me to the core. And it's his love that softens my heart and compels me to respond to people the same way. And the reality is, when I take revenge on people, I basically disqualify myself from having a deep spiritual impact in their life. Because that's how Jesus has an impact on my life and your life, because of his love for us. One final thought, and then we're going to put this into immediate, obedient practice. Some of you have experienced unbelievable evil and injustice in your life. People have hurt you and said things to you and abused you. And right now you're thinking, okay, that sounds real cute and all, but how do I show kindness? How do I show love to that person? You don't understand what they did to me. You know what? I don't want you to leave this worship experience this morning feeling burdened to just have to try harder. Well, I guess I just got to try harder. Oh. I said earlier, Jesus' intention isn't to burden us down with more law, more rules, more regulations. The question is not, how can I try harder to love people? Man, if I just tried harder, you know what? I just got to do more. I just got to try a little bit better. That's missing the point. What I would encourage you to do if you find yourself in the situation where you just want to uh, confess that to God. Acknowledge the vengeance and hate that is in your heart. God, I want to smack that person upside the head. Be honest. He already knows, but, but, but there's something about in prayer venting that to him. And invite God to come near to you. Invite him to draw so near to you that you can experience his reality. And as you experience that grace of God, 
you might just find yourself being transformed and set free. You might find grace expanding in your heart. You might find yourself becoming an agent of goodness and grace, not because you're trying harder, but because you're inviting the Spirit of God to meet you in the place of your frustration, in the place of your anger. Basically, my challenge to you is to test drive Jesus' teaching in your everyday life. Because the hardest place to live is right where we are. In your home, with that spouse, with that coworker, test drive it. Give it a shot. Just give it a shot. When they insult you, when they offend you, pray for them. Pray for them. Because it's, it's absolutely ridiculous to command someone to love them. Because there's so many emotional and, and psychological factors going on there. But to pray for them, well, we can do that. That's not really trying harder. That's just, oh, I can pray for them. I can pray for them. For example, you might work with somebody who's disagreeable. They might say things all the time that are insulting or offending. What would it look like in that situation to turn the other cheek? What would that, what was the, what is a creative option that isn't punch them in the mouth, but it's also not, well, just lay down and take it. What is a creative way that's not either of those? It's Jesus's way. Hey, hey, here's how to handle this. Here's a third option that you're not even thinking. What does it look like to go the extra mile with that person? What is a way that you can completely diffuse the entire situation by doing something that's completely off the wall, that doesn't even make sense, but completely gets at the heart of the matter. And I believe that if you put this into practice, if you just give this a test drive, you'll find yourself, if you find yourself right now in the habit of retaliating, maybe you'll start discovering a newfound generosity. The other person may or may not change. But at least you've put yourself in a position to show them the love of Christ. To respond not out of a heart of vengeance, but out of a heart that's been transformed by the love of God. And how we do it, we begin by praying for them. We pray for them. That's it. In all the world, in all the different ways that we could seek transformation in our hearts, Jesus says, pray for your enemies. Pray for those who would seek to use you and abuse you. Pray for them. And don't pray mean for them. Pray God's blessings upon them. Pray that they would encounter the grace of God. Don't pray that they would get hit, you know, by a, a random baseball through their car window when they're on the interstate. No. Pray that God would reveal himself to them. Pray that God's grace would spring up in their lives. Pray for them. And see if your heart's not changing. Now, here's what I believe about disciples. Here's what I believe about people who are following the way and life of Jesus Christ. One of the signs of a mature believer is immediate obedience. The temptation is obviously just to leave this room and try to put this into practice sometime later this week when I get around to it. We're not going to do that this morning. Here's what I'm going to encourage you to do. You know that person I asked you to think of at the very beginning of the message? We're going to pray for them right now. 
right now. Immediate obedience. We're not going to wait. We're not going to pause. We're going to hear the word of God and respond immediately. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to pray. Then I'm going to invite you. If you have somebody that you might classify as an enemy. And listen, we've all got them. People that get on our nerves. People that are insulting. People that are degrading. People that are offensive. They might live in the house with you. You don't have to tell them. You're my enemy right now. I want you to know that. I'm going to go up and pray for you. You don't have to tell them. I want us to pray for them. I'm going to encourage you here in just a minute to stand up from your seat. Walk up here and just kneel down for a few minutes and pray for them. Just pray for them. What do I pray? Pray God's God's grace in their lives. Pray that God would encounter them where they are. That the saving love of Christ would overwhelm them. Well, they're already a Christian. Well, then pray that God's transforming love would bring about new life in them. That's what we're going to do. So I'm going to invite you right now to bow your heads and here in a second, I'm going to ask you if you would like to come and pray for your enemies. I want you to do that. Lord, we gather here this morning. Thank you so much for joining us today. We always appreciate hearing how God is moving in your life. We all have a story to tell and we'd love to hear yours. Please visit verticalchurch.tv and click on the little pencil icon called Amen Corner to tell us your story. Also, if you'd like to support the ministry of Vertical Church financially, you can do so by clicking the giving link at verticalchurch.tv. Thank you again for taking the time to join us as we point those far from God to life in Jesus.